Um, so we have, first of all, uh, David Kashabak, who's based at the Immigration, Refugees and Citizenship Canada. Uh, good morning to you. <laughs> Hi. Um, we have Cameron McLaughlin at the Office of Refugee Admissions, PRM at the US uh, State Department. Um, that would be also a uh, good morning to you as well. And we have Laura Mataya Adam at Ashoka Hello Europe. We have Drosella Muguruera, I hope I pronounced that well, uh, at the Refugee, <laughs> thank you very much, Refugee Congress and Bridge Refugee Services. And we have Vincent Gratzkatu at uh, DG Home at the European Commission. But let me first now turn to David. David, before your current position at as Senior uh, Director for Horizontal Policy and Program at IRCC, you worked in many of the policy areas within the IRCC. So uh, we can presume that you have an excellent overview of the different services for settlement and inclusion. And so with that in mind, uh, we'd be particularly interested to hear what you saw as being some of the main challenges uh, that the pandemic threw um, at IRCC's work on integration and how uh, the organization has really adapted both its internal learning, but also in how it engages uh, with external services and uh, those who support your work. Um, I'll, yeah, hand it over to, to David, hi. I, I, I'm maybe experiencing a bit of a delay, so I'm, uh, hope, hopefully you can hear me now. Uh, thank you very much, Hanif, for the introduction and, and for the invitation to the organizer uh, for the panel. Um, I might take a step back and really, in terms of some context for you on, on the Canadian settlement sector, I mean, IRCC is the department funds over um, 500 different organizations to deliver a really diverse range of settlement services across the country, except for the, in the province of Quebec, where um, that province delivers its own program. Um, uh, many of these service providers are also funded uh, and deliver services for other, uh, other levels of government, like our provinces and territories. When the pandemic started, and, I, and I'll talk maybe about how, like it, it's a bit of, uh, as, the, as the department and, 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 and the relationship with this very large and, and, and in many cases decentralized uh, uh, part, uh, network of, of delivery partners and providing organizations. So when the pandemic hit, um, you know, we, we, what we did is have to learn by doing. Um, you know, we didn't have a playbook at hand, uh, nor did we have time to do a lot of in-depth research or consultations between having, before having to make some fairly immediate policy and, and decisions on programs. Um, one of the most immediate challenges I'd say were that if from one day, one day to the next, the expectation and the need to adapt service delivery um, from a very in-person model that was very much uh, ingrained uh, on in-person service delivery to one um, that had to be uh, pivoted to, to, to remote delivery. So I've been having to figure out how to coordinate that and communicate that with this range and network of service providers. So I think two, cent, two sets of early actions I might talk about to start and then, and then uh, you know, we can come back to during the discussion uh, uh, on, on maybe some more uh, examples or more granularity, but I think early, really, early actions really related to communication and coordination and to making funding, you know, some flexibility, introducing almost on the fly, some flexibility and some of the funding arrangements to permit and enable um, that pivot to, 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 to digital or, or remote um, service provision. So on, on the first, on communications and, and, and information sharing, I'd say that was a big piece of the puzzle. Uh, really sharing early and often and, and throughout, I think the, you know, those first, first months and weeks of the pandemic um, and, and, and until now, it continues. 
uh, um, sharing that information in terms of uh, what we're seeing in terms of the need, but also um, service delivery constraints or, 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 other, or other kind of uh, challenges. One thing that we found and we saw is really the, the um, uh, at the local level, even using um, uh, some of our local immigration partnerships or really at the, at the community level, the importance, I mean, I would say that the, the foundational um, um, uh, role that um, our service providing organizations have and had um, to help decipher um, the, the, the various, and I'd say changing uh, federal and, and sometimes provincial pr uh, public health guidelines and information. I think I've heard it a couple of times during the conference, sort of that, uh, that key sort of a, a, a tool and, and partnership um, to help uh, newcomers and those facing sometimes different uh, information needs, having different um, uh, barriers um, to get the information that they needed. Um, uh, in a language uh, that, uh, that that would be understood by by them. So I think that that was something in terms of uh, that year on the ground, but also a partner to partners uh, to disseminate in a way that would be understandable. But also as an ear on the ground in terms of understanding pockets of of concern with the pandemic, either where where there was sectors or, or groups uh, or cohorts of newcomers facing uh, uh, maybe more or different disruption. Uh, vaccine hesitancy uh, uh, intelligence was one of these. And also we've got um, providers that have given um, um, the need, help pull together pop-up vaccination cl clinics and, and the rest of it to really make sure that um, um, newcomers or, or, or cohorts that faced maybe different barriers or different needs were, were served. Um, so that was the first on communication. I think the second I mentioned that, that in the beginning was a bit of a financial flexibility. Um, and, and really here immediate action to, to try to enable that pivot to, to remote and online delivery. Um, so flexibilities in our grants and contribution management to allow service providing organizations to acquire the technology, the licenses, maintain the staff to continue to deliver uh, in a way um, that would be new uh, and untested. Well, not all completely untested, of course, but as a big uh, shift. What we've seen is 97% of our providers over the last 18 months have provided a service of some kind in a new, in a new way, whether that's online or, or phone or email or door-to-door -door in some cases. So that, that's something that we saw as a, as a bit of, a, um, as a, 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 bit of a, a change led by the circumstances. So what this led to, and I'll, and I'll end here, um, really was continuity of service. Um, I think from a newcomer's perspective, uh, you know, there was disruption, but, you know, we did see through moving to um, remote virtual platforms, the ability to address um, a social isolation, to address and continue to serve um, newcomers. So I think an opportunity, of course, that we, we have uh, now, and I think there was the, uh, the breakout groups right before this panel around uh, uh, tech uh, and, and a move to digital. So an opportunity to think, of, to think through, like, how do we use this to continue to innovate um, on service delivery? Um, at the same time, as we continue to, to be mindful of, of what that means in terms of accessibility and other uh, barriers or other uh, challenges um, that our client, uh, clients may, may face. So I might, I might leave it there to start, uh, Hannah, so back over to you, thanks. 
Thank you very much, David, for, for that interesting outline. And, and yeah, very interesting to hear, of course, that commitment, as you said, to this continuity of services to newcomers and, and really thinking through what that meant in terms of staying up to date as to what was happening, having your eyes and ears also with your local and different partners there and making sure all of this information is, is, is communicated with all different actors in a very timely fashion. And I think indeed a very important element, making sure that those who have the skills, the ideas, the, the knowledge as to what needs to happen, have the financial resources to, to act upon that and that kind of funding flexibility, I think many have, have outlined. Um, but if you, if I can just uh, maybe add one additional question and, and maybe going back to also what we were discussing at the beginning of the session is how do we make sure that some of this innovation, whether it's the practices that you have uh, you and, and partners have uh, implemented on the ground, but also the kind of more kind of commitment to, to adapt um, and innovate uh, your activities, how that has actually worked within the IRCC, how does that innovation work within your organization, and um, is there already a long-standing tradition that you've really uh, stimulated or, or pushed in order to, to do this, or is this something new that has really popped up as a result of what happened in the last 1.5 years and, and the speed at which and, and the magnitude with which we've had to, to adapt? Thanks. Yeah, no, th thanks for that. I mean, I think maybe I, I, I might have two elements to, to suggest. I think in, in the normal course of, say, policy, I mean, we, we're, you know, the, the organization I, I lead is, is one in the policy side of things. So I think in, in, in the policy making space, I think there is the need. And I think we've got, uh, uh, you know, we do want to keep looking at, you know, what is what is the effectiveness of the programming that's that's in the field? You know, what are the needs and how are they evolving? How's the pandemic shifted a bit of what newcomers coming to Canada or here, um, you know, face in terms of uh, a specific pandemic or post-pandemic uh, uh, potential um, impacts? So I think there's always that continual um, process of of examining what's there, assessing what's been working, and saying, all right, like, do we need? Is this, you know, do we need to, to rethink any approaches or any any specific pro program programmatic responses? I'd say one thing, and this is, you sort of ask, is it something that's new to the last eighteen months or something that's been in development? I think one place where we've been making a lot of effort as a program, as a department, over the last four or five years is really around getting a better granular sense of outcomes. So, you know, in the last six months, we've published the first. Um, of our uh, what will be a, a series of biannual settlement uh, program outcome reports. So really trying to get a sense, you know, and comparing uh, clients versus also non-clients of the program to understand, all right, what's working? Uh, how do we know that it's working? And then I think this will be a source too to sort of be able to then go back into the, the program in the policy design space and say, all right, like, what does this mean uh, as, as we move forward? I'd say that outcomes report and that, that sort of commitment to, to being able to track, measure, and then, and then manipulate that kind of data and information is one piece. I think the second in terms of, and I think the pandemic has really brought a fine point onto you know, where we need to maybe innovate or continue to do this is um, in 2017, we launched what we call the Service Delivery Improvement Fund, which was uh, you know, a small uh, 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 envelope of, of, of funding um, to try to, to, to test new concepts. Um, so, uh, you know, limited calls uh, uh, for proposals and for projects to try to test new approaches and new concepts. So our first intake of these in 2017 was for 100 um, 
different innovation type projects, um, many of which are now are wrapping up uh, and they have been since 2020. So we're, we're right now in the middle of, of assessing what are the lessons? What do we see from that, um, from, from those projects? We've just also launched the second, uh, I guess, cohort of these, of these, um, of this uh, uh, street, uh, service delivery improvement um, um, initiative um, with projects that we, ex we, we expect will start to, to, to go in the field in the, in, in the coming uh, months. So the last thing, you know, I think early learnings as we sort of assess what we've learned from those, uh, those that, that first uh, cohort of 100 um, projects. And I think there's, they speak to some of a lot of what we've been hearing from, from, from panelists and, and from other sessions. Uh, I'll give you a sense of the early learnings. And this is, so, you know, the, these were sort of tests like, uh, you know, small tests sometimes, you know, really a source of, it, of, of, of intelligence and information and data to allow us to sort of, I think, engage uh, more with our, our, our partners in, in, in the settlement sector but also I think will inform where we want to go in terms of the policy and the program reflection. The first one was on, I think, digital literacy. So what we found, and I think a huge thing in terms of accessibility, is that, you know, as we've shifted a lot of the program, uh, of our programming, pardon me, online or, or through re remote delivery, what we found is we need to focus a bit more on digital literacy and computer skills as foundational. It's really hard to start to, you know, get the, the results that we want in language or communication or, or employability skills training if folks aren't able to, to, to navigate the, 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 the technology itself. So that was you know, a, a finding of, of some of our projects. Um, the second one was around um, uh, employee, uh, employment related services where you know, we've, we had some, some tests, some tests in, 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 the, um, in the field to understand um, whether uh, uh, newcomers joining the labor market who had maybe low levels of fluency in English or French, um, um, how, how those employment uh, projects uh, uh, functioned. And what we did see is again, and it points to the need for more work from a policy perspective, is that um, often newcomers are anxious to join the labor market, but without that fundamental level of fluency, um, there are and continue to, to be barriers. And the last one I might point to as, a, as an example of something that we've seen that I think uh, uh, is is a useful lesson that to inform how else we, we want to move forward is is on language acquisition and interesting results uh, um, based on sort of parent child combined language programs. So having sometimes preschool age children attend the language programs as a big uh, as a huge as having a big benefit um, for improved social connection for newcomer women with children and community integration. So always trying to set get a sense through these these more maybe uh, uh, um, targeted uh, uh, testing kind of uh, projects to say, hey, how do we need to then evolve that, 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 that broader um, uh, program uh, forward? So I might leave it there, Anna. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, David, for um, outlining this. And if I can um, maybe take out the three kind of more kind of structural institutional lessons I maybe take away from this is, is on one hand, maybe what you said at the beginning, you know, the, the continued question about what are the shifts in needs in terms of newcomers, and that may be very specific when there's a pandemic, um, but I think, uh, yeah, we're also used to this in the migration and asylum field is that also the profiles of people who arrive are also very different with time uh, and the context in which they have to integrate also constantly shift. So this kind of commitment to continue to observe 
how um, those needs are changing and how to respond, I think is a really interesting one. The second one that you were pointing to, of course, uh, yeah, the financial opportunities to make sure that you can actually test new approaches and learn from that. But maybe thirdly, and I think that's what Canada is known for as well, is, is your commitment to research and evaluation, to really think through um, how can we make sure that we get a better sense as to what works in which context and why. Uh, and making sure that we have the data uh, available. So thanks very much uh, for that. I'll now turn uh, to our second panelist, uh, Cameron McLaughlin. Um, Cameron, um, hello to you. Um, as the policy team lead in the Office uh, for Refugee Admissions at the US uh, Department of State, you support refugee settlement efforts across the, e uh, the US. And um, we know, of course, and have heard that the current US administration is really uh, signaling and intending to, to um, significantly raise the refugee um, resettlement target for the next fiscal year. And so we're very interested, of course, that um, this has, of course, uh, huge implications for, for your office and the work it does. And so we'd be interested to hear how you're intending to adapt uh, your operations to, on the one hand, respond to these growing resettlement needs, but of course, uh, uh, at the same time, uh, working with all the challenges that um, the pandemic has put to your to your to your work and, and activities. Thank you, Cameron. No, thank you very much, Hannah. And please let me know if my audio uh, has any problems, uh, but I will try to fix it. But thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with all of you today. I really appreciate it. Um, it's good to see all of you and to see Drisella again, who I think I saw previously on video uh, last year at some point. Uh, unfortunately, David has stolen many of my excellent uh, points that I wanted to make in this presentation. Uh, and so I feel like I will re be repeating much of uh, the Canadian experience about innovation, but I do uh, salute much of what Canada has done in terms of uh, finding new solutions for refugee um, resettlement and uh, integration. And I, I'm very happy that we are continuing to work closely with them. Uh, in both in the past and in particularly with the uh, airlift of vulnerable Afghans to the United States in the past uh, two months. Um, I think to answer your question, this administration is very dedicated to ensuring that we can offer more opportunity for the most vulnerable um, to come and start a new life in the United States. Um, and we are looking at a wide variety of, of ways to try to expand capacity and I, I would say it splits into two different parts. One is what I'll call um, overseas processing, which is the, the somewhat complicated process we have to, to screen and to interview and to um, approve refugees overseas for resettlement. And the second would be the domestic integration piece in which after their arrival in the United States, how do we do our job to ensure that these refugees have the best chance at a good start uh, once they're here? Um, on the overseas processing part, the one thing I would I would note that's been very um, that has been a result of the the pandemic, but also has has been a has has pushed the U.S. government to do more is the capacity we have to do interviews, for example, overseas with with video technology, video and audio technology. It's something that certainly the technology has existed um, for many years and the capacity existed, but the, the, the push to use that technology in this environment, it was not there necessarily. It was there in a very limited sense, but I, but I believe that the combination of the results of the pandemic and the administration choosing to really um, find new space for, for refugees and to, to increase the numbers that we're admitting 
has pushed us much further along into using that technology overseas, particularly in environments where we aren't able to send a large number of refugee interviewing officers, but to find ways to, to leverage that technology to interview more refugees and to push more refugees through our pipeline towards approval. Um, I think it's a very exciting technology. We've tried to do a lot to ensure that the video and audio technologies we use are, are coupled with um, various security measures to ensure that there's uh, there's uh, no fraud or integrity problems in our program. And we also um, continue to work with our partners and our Homeland Security Department to ensure that they are comfortable with the technology innovations that we're looking at. But it, it's very exciting because I think it, um, it offers greater opportunity in ways that we haven't had previously. Um, the other thing I would just note in terms of uh, innovations. And again, this is something that David mentioned in his presentation, but I think it's it's also something that is exciting for us is on the domestic side, we uh, we have seen during the pandemic, a, obviously a much lower number of refugees in the United States for a couple months, it was just emergency cases and then it reopened, but still with very low numbers in 2020. Um, but we also saw that as services and as life moved significantly online during the parts of the pandemic, refugees, resettled refugees needed to have access to that. And so we've seen much more uh, innovative solutions by resettlement agencies and affiliates inside the United States, working with newly arrived resettled refugees to ensure they have a digital device, one or more per family, that they can access services online, that they can, as part of our cultural orientation, they may know where to look online. And going to what David talked about in terms of digital literacy, it's something that I don't know that we have a um, one size fits all solution, It's um, but it's something that our conversations with resettlement affiliates in the United States with our state refugee coordinators has really um, begun to look at as more things go online, we need resettled refugees to make sure they have access to that and that that's part of their new life as well. Um, I think I'll stop there. I don't, um, but I'm happy to take more questions on, on any of that. I just wanted to ask one follow-up question, Cameron. I think it's really interesting and, and yeah, it's just maybe a nice outcome that there is this kind of crossover or that the similar kind of uh, elements are coming forward from both Canada and, and your experience in that respect. And in terms of the digital literacy um, and uh, the need for digital the devices, are there guidelines being developed then within your uh, services to make sure that this is something that's going to be maintained in the months to come? I'm not, I'm not aware that they are. I, the United States model is a little more decentralized, I would say. Um, and it's a question I can take back because it, it, it might be that there's something and I haven't heard it yet. During the pandemic, we were had gotten to the point where we, um, it was both a bottom-up movement of resettlement agencies saying, hey, resettled refugees clearly need this. They're not going to be able to participate in life without some sort of digital interface. Um, we've started doing this. And as that message passed, we checked in with other agencies to see what they were doing as well. Um, I haven't heard uh, of a guideline, Drisella, you might know actually more than I do on this front, um, but it's something that uh, we're looking at and that's been, um, yeah, I will have to, I'll have to check back. I don't want to misspeak on that one. Great. No, thank you very much for, for getting to that. Um, and maybe Rosella can indeed in, in a little while um, uh, talk about this as well. Um, we're now going to turn to uh, Laura Bataya Adam. Um, Laura, uh, good day to you. Um, 
As the migration policy representative of Hello Europe, you work very much at the intersection between, on the one hand, social enterprises and policy uh, makers. And maybe um, one of the weaknesses of this vibrant landscape of refugee inclusion that emerged in recent, recent years is that to some extent, uh, it's still made of innovations rather than innovation. And what do we mean with that? Namely that there's lots of scattered and small scale success stories that rarely make it out of their original context. So what are the key success factors that you have identified to really systematize these innovations and channel them into public services and policy? So what can we do to really bridge uh, that gap? Laura, over to you. Thank you, Hannah, very much. And it's a pleasure to be with, with all of you today. Um, we are still, regarding your question, we are still experimenting with that, but I would like to try to respond to your question by referring to our very short history of uh, Hello Europe, uh, which has been determined very much by the two key events uh, related to the migration phenomenon, namely the 2015-16 massive arrival of people to Europe, and now more recently how the COVID-19 pand pandemic has been impacting uh, migration and integration. So in 2016, actually at a time where we were seeing this spike in, in migrant and refugee uh, movements and how the political reactions were to those as a, as a threat and a problem, we started actually identifying how uh, a lot of uh, innovations were being born in this field to give a different kind of response to, to this phenomenon and to support refugees and migrants in that situation. And that's when we start collecting our, um, our uh, portfolio of solutions and working with social entrepreneurs, uh, trying to give answers that we have been trying to consolidate over the last uh, three years. Uh, but it wasn't until uh, the COVID pandemic came in a few months before that, that we started actually our policy work in Brussels by establishing uh, a policy unit here uh, that we, we try to somehow systematize how this uh, policy, uh, these solutions are, are making sense all together. So we decided last year around April to bring together our community of uh, Hellopreneurs to collectively reflect on, uh, on how the pandemic was having an impact on migration and how could these uh, solutions be systematized in a way that would uh, give a proper response to, on the one hand, the most pressing needs of, of the newcomers, but also how to build uh, communities of support that would allow them to not only become part of society, but also contribute to it. But fundamentally, what we tried to do in our COVID-19 response, and when, when I say we, it's basically this response was made up of the contributions of all of our uh, social entrepreneurs, was to, to aim bigger and to rethink how the current uh, migration system works and try to reinvent it somehow. Uh, this was an ambitious goal, but this is what we have been trying uh, to do by kind of uh, referring to the different migration journey and then try to break it down to provide solutions in each of these uh, different steps. So the role of Hello Europe has been basically to facilitate this conversation where social innovation meets uh, policy with a view to jointly design solutions uh, that address these challenges that refugees and migrants are facing. So we presented these solutions in a policy uh, recommendation format, let's say. We discussed them in a series of policy salons with uh, policymakers and other uh, stakeholders throughout 
2020 and also this year. And we started a process of co-creating policies together to, to build on those individual solutions and achieve meaningful and long-term uh, change. This is where we are still now at the moment working on, on different on different fields, let's say, but we what has proven to work very well has been to bring together uh, untraditional partners, like for instance, the private sector or migrant communities that are often uh, not included in the conversation to, for example, start designing new legal and labor migration schemes or how to support and build an ecosystem uh, to, to support migrant entrepreneurship. So this is where we are still exploring and seeing how these uh, solutions and, and innovations can be translated into concrete uh, policy proposals and how they can influence uh, the design of, of policies in this field. But we have uh, realized throughout this policy journey, and this was already mentioned at the beginning, that involving migrant communities in the design of these solutions is the key to actually achieve a paradigm uh, change for migration and integration policy. So this is why we have also started a few months ago to map the migrant change maker, uh, the migrant change makers across Europe to contribute to this uh, shift and to, to be part of the conversation somehow. But what we have also realized is that in order to channel these uh, social innovations into policy, we might first need to actually change how policies are, are formulated and implemented in the first place. So we would need to maybe switch from a top-down approach whereby these policies are being tested and designed at the policy level. And it, it's not only until afterwards that they are being applied to, to the citizens uh, to be uh, shifted towards a bottom-up participatory process where a wide range of stakeholders, including uh, social innovators as well, are involved in the definition and implementation of, of these social policies. So we are all very aware of, of the many barriers that the, the development and mainstreaming of social innovation uh, still has uh, in order to, to influence policymaking or to be part of uh, policymaking. But I would say, and this is a realization mostly from Brussels, I would say that one of the main uh, problems or barriers that continues to stand is that social innovation is still not being recognized uh, as such by citizens, by civil society, or by policy uh, makers them, themselves. So I know my, my time is running short and I won't be going in detail into all these barriers that some of them have already been alluded by, by my colleagues, but I look forward to actually discussing this with the, uh, with the remaining speakers and to also hear from, from their experience on how to how can this gap be bridged? But I would like to uh, briefly conclude by sharing what we are actually working on next uh, at Hello Europe, which is to consolidate this transition from these individual solutions that we have been identifying over the past years and that uh, nowadays amount to over a hundred to build a new ecosystem accelerator that would gather all these innovators to engage in collective impact efforts together with the other stakeholders with whom we have been collaborating over the past uh, year and a half to work on topics that still need to be defined, but including uh, inclusion and COVID recovery or how to increase migrant innovators' leadership. So this is what is keeping us busy and, and still trying to make a contribution to, to the policymaking field. Thank you. Thank you very much, Laura. Really interesting. I mean, uh, different things that you, you bring together. Um, on the one hand, you were saying bringing them maybe the, the usual and unusual suspects together 
to, as you say, co-create uh, policies or, or develop uh, solutions. Um, I think the other angle of, of systematizing what you have picked up together with different actors as being very promising or useful uh, is really an important one. Uh, but then also, I think your, your um, invitation to make sure that we also really reflect on how policymaking happens and really making sure that there is this uh, opportunity for also the, the bottom-up approach to really be alive. And I think I would like to also connect that maybe a bit also with what David was saying in terms of the financial instruments, making that uh, possible, that those kind of innovations can at least have a chance to be tested and then that there's, of course, then a connection to making sure that feeds into to policymaking. So I think that's really interesting. And there may be some follow up questions from the audience uh, on that as well. Uh, but let me now turn to um, our uh, fourth panelist, uh, Drosella. And uh, hello to you. Uh, you're a member of uh, Refugee Congress. And I think this really uh, links very nicely to what uh, Laura was just saying now, as you, you represent an advocacy organization in the US that works at national, state, and local level to improve the well being of refugees, asylum seekers, and vulnerable migrants. And so, based on your experience, um, uh, yeah, how can we make sure that this multi-stakeholder cooperation is, is made possible and that we especially make sure that uh, refugees and, and other uh, migrant populations are really involved in helping to modernize and adapt integration policies to the evolving needs of diverse societies. And, and if you could give some concrete examples, I think it connects very nicely with what Lara has just uh, outlined as well. So thank you, Drusella, over to you. Thank you, first of all, for inviting and including me. And uh, I, I thank uh, Mr. Cameron for your leadership. Thank you. And you will find something that we'll talk about uh, as a result of what we talked about in the past. So um, as you know, I represent, I have many hats. And uh, as a former refugee and recipient of the services and now a provider and advocate, so I will bring different angles in our discussions. And uh, I remember one of my coaches told me that I have to start to work on my quotes. So the quote I want to talk about today is, there is no business for refugees and immigrants without refugees and immigrants' voices at the table. And uh, I will talk about why do we tell our stories? Refugee Congress members believe that our stories are our power. We tell stories to educate the population, but also to change the narrative. And those stories have been really working at different levels and will continue to use those as a strategy. Secondly, why do we advocate? We advocate our culture is to meet our representative in Washington DC, but at local level also to educate, talk about why refugees are here, what are the contributions, and to, to defeat also the, the laws, bad laws who are against uh, the refugee resettlement. And you can remember um, that one time when, for example, uh, the federal government was requiring uh, us to have consent from governors, mayors, refugee congress, and other partners did work together to get those consents. And it was really a good partnership at that level. And then uh, um, I wanted also to say that another third area is contribution to rebuild and strengthen uh, the US refugee admission program. The Refugee Congress participated in that exercise. 
So before in America, before another government comes on power, all the partners in the refugee settlement get together and examine what worked and what didn't work. And I was blessed to be part of that uh, study and we met with the PRM and Office of the Refugee Settlement. One of the things we talked about is that uh, the um, uh, self-sufficient should not focus just on early em employment because you cannot be self-sufficient if you don't speak the language, if you cannot navigate your community. So it's broader than early em employment. And then uh, the refugee settlement also should start overseas because if you NSCR and other nonprofit are not working together to prepare people who are coming here, so the integration become, uh, becomes harder and harder. And uh, we talked about the uh, opportunity to examine the private uh, co-sponsorship and I think the federal government is working on that and Canada does that. So that is a good uh, outcome. We recommended the federal government also to have a career path uh, to uh, skilled refugees. You know, uh, when I was back in Rwanda, I could work for United Nations uh, without passing another test or going back to school. And still now, refugees who are skilled at experiences, experiencing difficulties to go back to their professional career with a lot of delays. What if we develop uh, those uh, program for us? a partnership and other ones, but I know the federal government has now a grant for the career path, which is a very good thing, but we have to, to see it broader uh, because I think the recipient countries are losing time and skills uh, while they can be adapted and applied immediately. What can we do in terms of policy and working with UNESCO? So when people who are skilled are not losing time to get integrated using those skills uh, for the benefits of our new uh, home countries. And uh, also uh, the Refugee Congress, of course, uh, holds uh, leaders accountable, including the president. So we signed statements asking President Biden just to honor his promise because, and now we can see that the presidential determination was reviewed and the numbers of refugees uh, to arrive are increasing. Uh, the fourth area is reimagining re and redefining refugee integration outcomes. After uh, uh, the, the, the study uh, about the resettlement and the, and the findings, the Refugee Congress in collaboration with the Refugee Council USA and the Ethiopian uh, Community Development Council started to work on what really integration outcomes are and what that, those mean. And we are planning to give a report to the federal government before the next fiscal year of FY 2023. And then the contribution of evidence-based uh, practices. Refugee, Council, uh, Refugee Congress uh, is working with the USA for UNHCR to work uh, on um, sharing our experiences and to say, hey, what did work and to guide their strategic invest intervention in the future. So what are the positive outcomes I have seen? Uh, as I said, the presidential determination is revised uh, as part of the restoring refugee settlement capacity. The government uh, allocated some funding for my agency, for example, Bridge Refugee Services, we did get 60,000 to hire people who will work on capacity building and outreach to uh, other community partners so they can assist and support the program. Uh, there will be a staff member uh, in the 
in this fiscal year who is, will be in charge of capacity building and outreach. And um, the government also is um, exploring co-sponsorship, uh, private co-sponsorship model uh, from Canada. And in FY22, the government will provide funding to uh, support access to technology for refugees and fight homelessness. So one of the uh, challenges we are facing in America is affordable housing and transportation. So if the affordable housing is not addressed, uh, if you don't have a, a place where to live, there is no way you can integrate easily. So we are glad that the federal government did provide some funding. So for the, for the technology, I think we have the guidelines, how uh, we will su support our clients, how much we will spend on a laptop and uh, other services regarding that service. So we are also required, I think this is the best practice and there are things I didn't see 12 years ago. Uh, we have uh, community consultation every three months. Every quarter, the refugee settlement agencies bring together all the partners in the community and they talk about who are there, what are the challenges and how we can all together work on it. And then we are required to report about who is in charge of what and how integration is going on in our community. And also we are required to get uh, feedback from our clients, which is a very good thing in terms of uh, good governance. Uh, in conclusion, uh, I can share the tips for success in participatory in decision-making. Invest in refugee leadership. So when you, the, the refugees are trained and equipped, really they can lead, and, but also the uh, giving forward is a must. Let us identify barriers together, not just one part, but we are in this business together. And then we can reimagine what integration means because sometimes we have different levels of understanding about integration. And then we have to co-design from the start, co-design all of us together, including refugees' uh, uh, voices. And then um, another thing we started to advocate for, and that is working, is rewarding refugee expertise. Because sometimes refugee expertise is not valued and uh, we have been some uh, good feedback and organizations really who are taking us as expert. We have that expertise, unique expertise that has to be valued. And uh, I thank you so much for listening and I am ready to respond to other questions. Thank you very much, Rosella. I think that's a very rich overview in terms of the kind of different kind of practices in which you are actually informing uh, policymaking, but also um, really outlining different kinds of steps which are very useful in terms of the kind of regular consultations that you're referring to, but also what are some of the conditions for uh, migrant-based organizations or refugee leaders also to participate in that process, as you would say, uh, and invest in their leadership, help them build up their capacity, um, and also treating them, as you say, um, with, with uh, a role of, of being an expert. And I think this also goes back um, to the, the sessions that we had at the beginning of our afternoon here in Belgium, um, in terms of really uh, different people really emphasizing that particular part, how important it is to be treated in that kind of expertise. And there may be some further questions on that um, from the audience in, in a second. Uh, but let me now turn to our um, fifth panelist, um, Vincent Cato. Uh, nice to see you again. Um, uh, yes, I think with, with you, we wanted to discuss the fact that, you know, via your work as a policy officer uh, at the European Commission, 
you, I'm sure, have been often confronted and had to deal with the fact that, of course, uh, within the EU, uh, legislative and regulatory competence on integration really resides and is concentrated uh, at the national and subnational level. But still, um, the European Commission has really carved out for itself an important role as promoter of, of knowledge exchange, of learning, of innovation. And so we'd be really interested to hear from you how uh, within that role, um, the EU has, has succeeded in making sure that when uh, COVID struck, that national governments really took a very prompt and innovative action in this field. So I'll, I'll hand it over to you, Vincent. Thank you very much. Good evening. Thank you for the invitation. Very interesting change. Uh, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, to, to take part in this discussion. I feel a bit in the same position as uh, Cameron uh, with uh, David uh, having uh, stolen some of the points I wanted to make, but uh, still on your position is always uh, good in the learning process, so I heard. Uh, but indeed, as you said, uh, we're also in a, in a different position as, as, a, as a public authority, let's say, since we, we don't really implement or not directly. So we're in a different situation compared to, 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 to other actors that, uh, of course, sometimes uh, delegate to other actors, but we're there's, there's an additional layer uh, that also makes the complexity and the, the beauty of the of the European Union uh, sometimes. Um, so indeed, we have a strong role in terms of information exchange dissemination. Sometimes I like to see some of the work we do as a, as an information what have in a way uh, some a place where the Commission is happy to share receive information. So to create this, this information and exchange between the different levels. So, of course, between member states, that's, uh, that's the obvious thing, but really also different levels. So between civil society and uh, governmental authorities, uh, different different levels, of course, the local, the national, the regional. So th this is also what we, we, we underline in, in our action plan on integration and inclusion. And as what, what we, we, you, you refer to the, the, the multi-stakeholder partnership, we also have a strong reference that in, in our policy document in, in terms of really the need to involve all actors, all levels. And sometimes we, uh, we see that indeed the added value of the commission is to create bridges between these different actors that sometimes talk to each other, but sometimes less or in a different manners and then create this, this new space for, for discussion. In terms of uh, response to the, the, the COVID-19 crisis, um, I think one example of what we did, not sure how innovative that is, but I think that was still useful, uh, was the, the effort we made in terms of sharing the information on how we did uh, migrant community outreach. So that was, as I said, that was already uh, somehow mentioned by, by, by David, but that was the similar sense on, on, on um, uh, we know that uh, reaching out to, co to migrant community is not always easy, depending on the topic. Uh, and, and some uh, national actors don't have uh, the contacts, don't have uh, sometimes the means or the adapted means to have an effective communication and an effective uh, information dissemination towards uh, part of the society. And there, uh, there was, of course, an even more pressing need to do that. And, and we knew that, uh, uh, well, it, it was for 
their own good, of course, to receive the information, but also the, the own good of society, and to create this this, uh, this this flow of information in an effective way. Also taking into account the trust aspect, uh, the idea that, of course, information nowadays, we've seen that with all uh, fake news on, uh, on the, around the pandemic, that there was, there was a reinforced uh, need to, to, to find a, a good way to, to pass this information. Uh, and so we, we organized the exchange uh, of, of good practices through our uh, European website on integration, where uh, there was a list of, of, of interesting practices. Uh, I remember, for example, the Swedish uh, example was called uh, Tell Corona, where they created short videos that could be uh, then forwarded, relayed by the other actors to also avoid the, the, the usual and sometimes ineffective way of a state campaign addressing everyone in the same way and, of course, not reaching and not impacting the same way uh, everybody. Uh, so that, that's maybe the the the, the first uh, the first idea. In, again, not that innovative, but I think that uh, at least that helps some some actors to realize uh, other formatting, other ways, uh, and maybe other type of messages to 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 pass through to migrant communities. Uh, the second uh, and there I, I will repeat partially also what Cameron said. In terms of the remoting interview for resettlement, uh, there we also uh, learned a lot. Uh, I think here again we can see the COVID nineteen as a, as an accelerator, not really creating something new, but something that said, now we need to act and we need to. We don't have a choice and we need to do things much faster. So in terms of trying testing uh, with the, some member state that had started to do a remote interview that was, that always existed, but in a very limited way. Now, some member states, uh, some countries are willing to do that and to try that, whereas in the past, they're uh, only rely, uh, relied on, on, uh, uh, on uh, interview in the country. And uh, it, it cannot replace because it's, uh, I think it's complementary tools, but it's interesting that now uh, you see authorities uh, uh, perceiving these tools uh, in 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 much more accessible way uh, that that is a tool they are ready to to use and that was very helpful for us to to have our asylum agency uh, EASO that organized this discussion uh, between member states to explain okay uh, how do you do that practically logistically uh, uh, what are the obstacles what are the added value but what are the, the drawbacks of such a solution how to continue resettlement despite all the, the obstacles that the, the pandemic uh, created. Um, and uh, maybe uh, to, to, uh, to, to, to also um, uh, jump on one aspect that was mentioned in terms of the digital access, uh, that's also something we've seen again as accelerated, accelerated by the pandemic in terms of that was a priority for some part of the commission work, not just for migrants, but in general, in terms of uh, uh, in terms of the digital education action plan that the, the, the commission uh, has, has launched, which is for everyone, but also then for migrants. And we've seen that uh, that member states have uh, implemented action. Uh, I will put a link to, to an action in Luxembourg, which was really uh, focusing on uh, vulnerable groups, including migrants, and how, uh, for example, uh, digital classroom was supported 
access to equipment uh, and how to support uh, migrants, which were part of, uh, of the groups that, of course, faced additional obstacles uh, when, uh, when, uh, when receiving, uh, when accessing uh, education online in, in the countries where there was lockdown, etc. Um, and, and so I would say uh, as well uh, that what we try to do in terms of innovation and, 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 and innovative uh, solutions uh, that we're as, as a big organization, we're in a time frame which is uh, rather slow. So of course we try to accelerate and, and be flexible, but sometimes we also rely on things that we're starting to be implemented or to be um, reflected upon. I'm thinking, for example, on some funding tools uh, where we have underlined in the past uh, tools like mentoring in terms of the, the integration of, uh, of migrants. We, uh, and we have received, we received a very positive feedback from organization on the ground to say that mentoring is, can be an effective tool in terms of integration. And that was a tool that was used as well uh, during the pandemic, even if sometimes only online, but that was very, uh, very, uh, very interesting to, to keep the connection and fight isolation, which was uh, sometimes uh, uh, an additional obstacle that migrants uh, uh, faced. Maybe I'll stop here and then we can take further questions. Thank you very much, Vincent. Um, and I think it's a really interesting point. I mean, uh, I mean, you raised a lot of interesting uh, ideas, but also I think your final point uh, as well. I think uh, what is interesting, of course, um, and which maybe that links with what was what we were talking with David about. I mean, having that constant interest and commitment to keep observing, of course, what are the needs of, of migrants and newcomers and how to adapt services. But the European Commission, because of uh, what it represents and also where it has a mandate and maybe where it doesn't have a mandate or, or competence, uh, that it has this kind of uh, constant um, stimulus to, to continually observe what the different member states are doing. So in terms of exercising the muscles of constantly comparing what different actors are actually putting forward to a similar kind of problem is actually quite a rich resource for innovation or really capturing new ideas and, and then really making sure that those ideas are, are shared. And I think your reference also to then the role of the EASO in, in making sure that some of these, um, not necessarily, as you said, novelties, but something that was accelerated because of the, the crisis can really be taken up and something concrete can be done and those information can be shared. So I think that's also a really interesting example of what can be done in, in more kind of government level institutions in terms of making sure that innovation is constantly exercised and there's this commitment to it. And then maybe um, to come back to maybe one of your earlier points about you know, the really the need of, of making sure that different actors connect with migrant communities. Um, there are a couple of interesting questions in, in the chat now being raised. Uh, about that and I think uh, different uh, people in the audience on the one hand are saying um, raising the question how can you convince uh, government actors that there's actually a vested that's for them in, the, in their interest to make sure that they have that kind of uh, connection with refugees and migrants from the very start and that they're they're involved and of course uh, another question um, that maybe we can then also maybe start with that with you but then maybe we can go back to Laura also and, and Osella about how can we make sure that once these people are around the table in terms of local innovators or, or um, different migrant uh, organizations that they actually have the capacity to participate 
in the conversation, that they're well prepared so that they can make the impact or share the knowledge that they have. But maybe let's first start with you in terms of how can you make sure that uh, government institutions have that kind of understanding and that interest in bringing those different people around the table? Um, thanks, Faisal. In terms, so in terms of bringing migrants and refugees to the table, uh, for example, we started and we started uh, recently with this expert group on the views of migrants, which gather uh, individual experts with a migrant background or organization representing uh, the interests of migrants. So that's a recent move, but that's something that we've, we've been reflecting for quite some time. And that's, again, also trying to uh, to show uh, how this tool is used that exists in different member states at different level. Uh, I recently attended an interesting uh, example in, in France where they also uh, organize this uh, expert committee on, on refugee uh, and provide some training uh, to some uh, training via conferences and, and, and meetings with different stakeholders to, to to give also a context uh, to, to, to people that might have worked on migration, but, but might not have worked on administrative political uh, structures. So uh, I think, uh, well, the, the key, one of the key aspects is time uh, in the sense that, uh, and, and patience, uh, which uh, we often lack uh, uh, in administration or political context, uh, meaning that this, uh, we need to acknowledge that this will take time to uh, give the space. And uh, so we need to give the time to the people that uh, we give a place to. So we cannot expect uh, people to come at the table discovering the way we function in administration um, and give uh, the input that actually we think they should give. Uh, so it's, it's a discussion that we, we need to start and, and acknowledge it, it, it takes time. And sometimes the feedback will be also uh, kind of mind blowing in the sense that this is not what we expect, which might be relevant or not relevant, but that's, uh, I think the idea of the discussion uh, also, I think more general in terms of uh, local democracy in general, uh, really uh, uh, building those bridges with, uh, with, with communities, local communities, migrants and non-migrants to discuss those issues. Uh, then, Indeed, uh, when reflecting on that, you, one usual weakness is, uh, is the, the, the totem aspect. So just bringing someone around the table and not giving the keys. So not, uh, not preparing, not giving the time to analyze, uh, not giving some of the tools and the keys that uh, in a way they're functioning. Then I think the other aspect is, is, is to see, uh, and that's what we try to do when you underline the, the comparison, is to see the added value when it works. Uh, because sometimes uh, authorities are doubtful of the added value of that because also they see uh, the people they are forced or reluctant to invite to the table as non-experts. So they're not sure of the added value of their, or their input. But the idea is to show where it works. And it's, it's part of so the message that we need to bring integration to, to the agenda as often as possible, but in a different manner than it is now. So in a more positive manner, in terms of showing that actually what works and then and, 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 and making it into um, migrant migration integration as part of the solution 
and not always presented in a negative manner and a, a, a problem to, 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 to be dealt with. So with these examples, and they exist, uh, uh, then you really, uh, you, you, you really can, can convince more uh, other, more and then several authorities that uh, they, can, uh, they, can bring, they can bring experts migrant communities, uh, migrant uh, individuals around the table to, to be consulted and to be part of the discussion. Thank you, Vincent. That was really interesting. And I think you've set the, the basis very good to, to actually now go to, to Laura. Laura, I mean, you've seen also talk to questions in, in the chat. I mean, they're very interested to hear how do you then make sure that, as Vincent as was saying, that people have the keys to actually engage in discussion in a meaningful way and, and make um, yeah, the changes that they want to, to see uh, happening. So could you exp expand a bit more on, on that? Thank you. Sure, this is, this is actually a two-way process because I would say it's about teaching uh, both social innovators and policymakers uh, each other's language somehow because it's a very, very different one. Uh, and, and this is the first step, I would say, to make both uh, being aware of, of the others and then try to what we have done of course is to first map out within our community of social innovators who had previous experience probably working on trying to influence policy a few of them had but not all of them and definitely not at the eu level i would say so uh, the innovators that had previous experience was always at the local or national level but never at the, at the EU, and this is where we mostly operate uh, on. So we have been providing them trainings or we have uh, trying to translate those uh, social innovations into more concrete uh, policy recommendations. We uh, published this uh, booklet uh, last year before summer that I can share here on, on, on the chat about how those innovations were translated somehow into policy recommendations. And we also help them navigate uh, what are the different developments at the EU level. So it was actually a very timely moment because last year it was also when the EU launched its pact, new pact on migration and asylum and also the plan on integration and, and inclusion. So it was very timely uh, to bring those news to them as well, although we don't actually try to influence policy in the traditional ways, let's say, for instance, by influencing uh, a, a law directly, trying to amend it or things like this. What we try to do is have uh, conversations where there's a common understanding of, uh, of the topic. So we have been trying to teach them a bit about the, uh, yeah, how, how the EU works and what are the different actors on the table. But we were very surprised because since the very beginning, I think it was in April already when we were presenting this uh, number of solutions, we actually uh, organized kind of a high level uh, meeting to present it to, to policymakers themselves. And, and it was interesting to see how uh, much attention it attracted and that those policymakers make the time to actually discuss those solutions before they were going to make public. And we actually, and, and I have to uh, agree to what Vincent has said about what the commission is doing at the moment. It's not only this expert group on the, on the views of migrants, 
to which we proposed uh, several of our community members and, and three of them are part of this, of this expert group at the moment. But there are also other channels that the EU has been opening. Uh, there are informal exchanges of views with the commissioner to which we have had an opportunity as well to participate and, and also to have bilateral encounters. And Vincent has been uh, in some of these meetings with our social innovators uh, themselves. So I think it's about creating these spaces for dialogue. And normally, uh, at some point, uh, we are no longer needed there. I mean, it's the uh, social innovators that continue uh, the discussion. But what I see, um, and it has been alluded as well, it's uh, still a fragile architecture, I would say. So to really uh, bring about impact and change, it requires to maybe change uh, how the organizational culture of, of those administrations work to make uh, to make it more easier to really co-create those policies. And, and because there are so many different actors that there's a lack of policy coordination as well. And it's also due to the nature of, of uh, social innovation in itself, because it touches upon so many different policy areas. I mean, migration, it's not only about migration, it's transversal, I would say. So in that regard, I think, but this is something that the the EU is uh, not new to, and it has started already uh, working uh, years ago, but it requires, of course, uh, time to, to build these new mechanisms and, and working groups within the organizations, and also to train policymakers to turn them into change makers somehow, and, and the value of social innovation and, and how this could be possible. But I think uh, the doors are open somehow, and, and we appreciate this openness to, to interact and to engage with the EU institutions at a very close level and hope that our social entrepreneurs can also uh, contribute directly in the years to come. Thank you very much, Laura. I think that was a really interesting um, way in which you unpacked um, uh, the, the keys that, that Vincent had been referring to in terms of how do you make sure that this interaction and, and this influencing is, is possible. Um, I think you talked about this two-way process about learning each other's language, I think was a really interesting um, uh, metaphor, um, the book that you referred to, but also making sure that there's on the one hand these kind of formal channels where people can speak or occasions, but also the informality um, and even though I think you're very hopeful in terms of that kind of conversation happening, uh, you're seeing a lot of positive signs. Uh, I think your point about the fragility of the architecture is a really important one maybe for all of us to take away. Uh, we see promising signs. I think also uh, Cameron and David talked about lots of examples where this is happening. The question is, of course, how do we make sure that this is almost embedded or ingrained in how we develop and design and implement policy making in this field? And I would like to now uh, lastly turn uh, to Rosella before we then close, um, because Rosella, yeah, I'm sure you also have lots of examples of how you are supporting, uh, um, yeah, making sure that refugees and migrants actually are, when they're around the table, and as you said, sometimes reflecting uh, through these three monthly consultations or whether it is about reflecting on a more kind of broader level, what has worked and what not in terms of the administration. One of the first examples you gave, how do you make sure that people around the table have the capacity to engage? And a particular question that was asked in the chat and the Q&A was what kind of trainings? You refer to training. So I think they would be very interested to hear a bit more about those trainings to understand how we can support this process. And I think that's part of making that architecture that uh, Laura was talking about a bit stronger uh, in, in the months and years to come. Thank you. Okay, thank you. Uh, I think in the US now, um, refugees' voices are no longer negotiable. 
So we became, we, we became proactive. And one of the strategies, as I said, is telling our stories. So we empower every refugee member Congress so they can tell their stories. It's, it's a training we are providing and there is one of former refugee who has a, a company who does that. And uh, because, you know, there is a trust, we have to build trust, but we have to be also proactive. So people will not handle us things we want. We want to be participants uh, around the table. I remember when I came uh, in this position as a direct executive director of Bridge Refugee Services, the first people I wanted to meet are the mayors. So I went to meet the mayor uh, of the city and the county. And then I explained uh, the refugee program in the city and I did ask for help. So now every year, the city is, Bridge Refugee Services is one of the nonprofit they give money to. If I didn't go, nobody will talk about us and then they will know that there are refugees there and then nothing. And then I went to see the uh, mayors of the county, same. So I did get funding for them to support uh, uh, the interpretation services and the case management. So uh, as I said, you remember in the tips I did say, building refugee leadership. So you have to train them. They have those capacities, but do we have to enhance and train them? And we share story also to break the barriers because there are many misconceptions, as you know, people saying that we are coming to take resources. We are uh, a threat, uh, that, that there are people who are terrorists and things like that. We are the one who have to show that we are not those ones. If, for example, I freed for security reasons, I want to show them that I care about safety and security more than any other person. So this is why equipping them by training them. And also one, uh, the training we do is how do you interact with the media? Because you know how the media sometimes speak the things which are against the refugee settlement. We are the one who have to talk to them about um, how uh, that is happening and why they should support the program. Also, we encourage our volunteers, our donors, everybody to tell the stories and we, we like we have, for example, a newsletter and all the time I emphasize about the refugees impact in our communities. And that changes also the narrative among the people who do not want to support the service, the, 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 the program. And also, as I said, we are now working on refugee integration. So people have to be trained about the planning, the analytical making, analytical uh, judgments, or all those, those kind of things. And then we have to train also the refugees to to, to have like a, an integration in the social, economic, and understanding their communities and being involved. Because when you are involved, they, when you show up, you go up. When you are involved in the community, people will know you, they will know what your value, and then let alone they will invite you. But it, 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 it does take investment. Another thing is self-development. Everybody have to have like that thirsty to keep growing and growing. But, Anytime I have been told that when you go to a conference or any meeting, just make sure be prepared and speak because people have to know, hey, who is that person in a new community? And then people will come to you and they will start to. And, and then the last tip is building relationships. 
no matter what, building relationship at every level in every industry is the, the thing that makes open doors. So we have to teach refugees how to network and open uh, and build relationships. Probably right. I can stay there, but when they come in the meeting, we give them the floor, we ask questions. Sometimes even you have to say, hey, Josella, what do you think about this? Because sometimes I will be sitting this as a new refugee and not come, but we have to engage them in the mm -hmm, conversation. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's a really rich overview of different things that you have been um, trying out with the people you work and also experience firsthand. And I think we can learn a lot uh, from that. And so I would like to, to thank all, all panelists uh, for all of your rich interventions. And I think we're now ready to close uh, our, our session and also, of course, uh, the conference. Um, before I do, I just wanted to outline some of the key takeaways that from our team we have been uh, picking up. Uh, it will not be an exhaustive overview, of course, uh, but more the kind of key flavors, uh, the key points that have come to the forefront uh, over the past two days. And so uh, firstly, what we've noticed is that what we've heard many of you say is that uh, amid the COVID-19 crisis, that social innovators, civil society, business and government actors really quickly devised short-term solutions uh, to keep delivering service for refugee and migrant inclusion. And the panelists also in this session have referred to that. So uh, whether it comes to translating essential information in several languages or partnering up with community leaders to disseminate it, um, they've experimented with a range of virtual fo formats such as online town hall discussions to really ensure that um, there's an ongoing exchange between local government, civil society, and diverse communities, but also, as we just heard as well, building digital literacy among refugees and migrants is crucial and really making sure that uh, it's possible to leverage those virtual platforms to continue to deliver childcare and maintain a sense of community despite physical uh, isolation, especially amongst the most uh, vulnerable. Yet at the same time, we had discussion really stressed the importance of looking back at this really um, this period of really intense pressure and adaptation to evaluate what happened and really to draw lessons on how these short-term solutions could inform long-term systemic change uh, when it comes to refugee accommodation, psychosocial support, inclusive strategies for community-based emergency planning, recovery planning, childcare and skills development. And this is something that uh, we've tried to now explore with our panelists in this session on, on how that can be done. And there was lots of interesting examples also shared here. Um, um, but speakers also discussed how to master this delicate transition from short-term adaptations to wider systemic change. And they agreed that this really hinges on, on certain conditions. And so one of these conditions is to secure genuine refugee and migrant participation in terms of defining the challenges, but also devising them the subsequent solutions. Uh, we heard about the fallacy of, of painting all refugees with the same brush um, and the risk that narratives and policies emphasizing vulnerability over agency become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, we also looked at um, on how essential it is to critically look at the way ecosystems of social innovation work 
Who defines the rules of the games? What are some of the invisible barriers that prevent some groups from accessing opportunities to bring in their knowledge, engagement, and entrepreneurialism? And I'm really grateful to our panelists today uh, of, of this session who, who gave uh, lots of ideas and examples on how to address this. Um, and so this really allows us to, to yeah, identify and work with initiatives that really ensure eye level participation in decision uh, making. Another uh, factor for that um, or, or condition for that systemic change is also the importance of combining efforts to change hearts with data-driven conversation. So, for example, we really need reliable data on the economic contribution of immigration, but also on the likely magnitude, of course, of uh, potential uh, displacement crisis or, or situations in the years to come. And when it comes to estimating, estimating costs, speakers highlighted that the choice between inclusion and exclusion should not be erroneously uh, be presented as spending versus saving, but for what it actually is, a choice between a long-sighted investment on the one hand and a long-term cost on the other. Uh, and we also have discussed the importance of building narratives that appeal not only to the converted, but also to the movable middle with more complex and seemingly contradictory views about migration. This means going really beyond polarized and stereotype portrayals of migrants and refugees as either exceptional persons or helpless victims and craft instead personal stories that show how migrants live, participate and contribute to the everyday life of our local communities as their full um, members. And maybe lastly, what was also interesting to see is that while yes, when we're trying to coordinate efforts, we really need to try and optimize all mobilized resources. There was also a plea from different stakeholders to, that are engaged in, in refugee inclusion to not worry too much, especially in a time of crisis, about reinventing the wheel. Um, given the really persistent gaps and loopholes in many areas of refugee and migrant inclusion, it's really important to remain bold, proactive, um, and have a, a fresh pair of eyes that are that really are preferable to any kind of hesitation and positive passivity. So uh, with that, uh, I, we would like to uh, thank you all for those uh, really uh, the ones who've been contributing to some of the, the panels and the workshops. We want to thank you all for, for joining the conversations, also as participants in sharing your ideas or your suggestions or questions in the chat and making sure that this allows for a very lively discussion, even though we're not in the same room uh, and cannot um, discuss with one another over, over coffee. We hope that through uh, our platform that you were able to share uh, some of your uh, ideas and that you're also able to connect with new people. And we wanted just to say that in that respect, uh, World will remain accessible for several weeks after the conference. So if you've missed some of the session you wanted to attend, you can still um, look at the recorders, which will be posted quite soon, um, and also look at some of the bios and maybe sure make sure that you connect with the people that you wanted to connect. Um, and you can also look at our website on uh, www.mpieurope.org. And so last but not least, we would like to, on behalf also from MPI Europe, thank the partners and sponsors of this event, which are the US Mission to the European Union, the Canadian Mission to the European Union, and the European Economic and Social Committee. And uh, lastly, I would like to wish you all a very nice rest of the day or evening, and we look forward to seeing you uh, in person or virtually at another event. Thank you very much. <laughs>